Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to Australia in the World. I'm Darren Lim from the ANU and it's Friday the 10th of November. Prime Minister Albanese's trip to Beijing has happened and then the PM actually then travelled on to the Cook Islands for the Pacific Island Forum. But it's the China visit and what might come next in bilateral relations that we have to talk about. And so I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Ben Herskovich, who is a colleague of mine here at the ANU and prior has worked at DFAT, the Department of Defence and as a researcher for Beijing-based think tanks and consultancies. But most importantly, he is the author of the Substack newsletter, Beijing to Canberra and Back, which listeners will remember cited many, many times before on this podcast, because it is far and away the premier source of information about the bilateral relationship. Ben, thank you for your newsletter, and it is a pleasure to welcome you for the first time to Australia and the world. Thank you so much for having me, Darren, and thank you for that gratuitous, far too kind plug. It's really unbecoming when I do those things myself, so it's great that you did it for me. <laughs> I am a long-time listener, so it's a real honor to be on the program. And for the benefit of your listeners who can't see my face now right now, I am blushing lightly at that introduction, so thank you. The other thing we, I can't see, Ben, though, is normally when I've seen you do videos, because we can see each other at the moment through this software, there's a delightful copy of Xi Jinping's The Governance of China, normally on your bookshelf behind. Is that still there? I just can't see it at the moment. It is right behind my head. I think, unfortunately, only the first three volumes, so waiting to get my hands on volume four. Mm, mm, well, you better not waste any time. Anyway, on that note, speaking of Xi Jinping, Prime Minister Albanese just completed his visit. Can you talk us through the last week, please? What did you see? What, what stood out to you? Look, I've been watching it way too closely, I've got to admit. As a total sucker for all of the details and policy wonkery of Australia-China relations, I've been refreshing photographs on AAP and refreshing <laughs> Twitter constantly and going so deep into all of the imagery. It's been a wild ride, very significant, very exciting. I would say that on some level, and we've talked about this before, but I think it's a point worth making again that it is significant just that this occurs at all. And I did an interview with some international media recently and they gave me this bit of advice of, can you make your comments about the Australia-China relationship a bit pithy, a bit relatable to people? And so I was trying to think, how can I make it not so wonky? And the thought that I had was actually, this is the first time that a prime minister who's serving has gone to China for many, many years, but also the last time the serving Australian prime minister touched down in China was when Barack Obama was still in the White House. So it really has been a staggeringly long period of time between drinks. And on some level, that means that there's going to be a lot of pomp and circumstance and it's going to be drummed up massively as it was. And that's significant. Both sides celebrating the visit occurring, celebrating this leader level diplomacy. That's important in terms of the symbolism of how much the Australia-China relationship has been repaired and stabilized. But I think it's also important in terms of hard-headed Australian national interest calculations in that in terms of Australia's security and Australia's prosperity, there are few capitals that matter more, arguably no capitals that matter more with the possible exception of Washington than Beijing. And so to be able to have an Australian leader go to Beijing and prosecute Australian interests and advocate Australian positions face-to-face -face 
with the three most senior figures within the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese system of government more broadly is a really significant development for Australian statecraft. It's an important KPI in foreign policy terms for any Australian government. So I think it's important in that regard. In terms of things that were really striking to me over the course of the visit and in the wake of it, one thing that I was really struck by was just the psychological whiplash of the Chinese state media and the Chinese government, even just a few months ago, being quite critical about Australia for many things. And if you go back a year or two years ago, being immensely critical of Australia for all sorts of different things and being really dismissive of Australia, deriding Australia, talking about Australia in almost dehumanized ways. And then all of a sudden with this visit, the positivity is ramped up massively and it's effusive, both from the Chinese government, but also the Chinese press ecosystem more broadly. So we're in this phase of Beijing really embracing wholeheartedly and with a great deal of enthusiasm, almost unexpectedly so, the Australia-China relationship and Australia in particular. Can I pick up on this idea of the KPIs, the key performance indicators? You know, what you've talked about, you know, the pomp, the circumstance ceremony, you know, the, the, the form of the visit, the orientation of state media or the reorientation, these aren't concrete deliverables, policymaking deliverables. And I can see people complaining that they don't get us very far. What's your response to that? And then can you sort of then seg, I guess, into what were the concrete takeaways, if any, from, from this visit? Yeah, look, I think that is a totally fair criticism. And that's the objection that figures within the opposition here in Australia, they've been making that point repeatedly in the media during the visit and in the wake of the visit. And it's quite understandable. We want concrete, specific things to result from this. I think we can talk about concrete things that have come out of it. They're a bit wonky, a bit granular, but they do matter. So one thing was that this visit marked the resumption of the annual leaders meetings between Australia and China. The last one occurred in 2019. And so the fact that we're having them again, that is an important development. It means that we'll potentially have the Chinese premier coming to Australia next year, or maybe another visit to China by the Australian Prime Minister, but having that structure reinstituted is important for the bilateral relationship from Australia statecraft more broadly. Then we had some little announcements in terms of long-term visas for Australians and Chinese people coming between the two countries. That's not earth-shatteringly important, but it does matter in practical terms. And I guess in terms of that bigger question of has the relationship fully stabilized, we've seen an outcome statement which lists a whole host of other elements of bilateral communication engagement that will be normalized in the wake of this visit. So I think it is significant in terms of marking arguably the formalization of stabilization. Quite aside from any of those kind of wonky foreign policy diplomatic considerations, there's also what it means on the trade front. Now, during this visit, we didn't have concrete movement on any of the remaining trade restrictions from China. The process on wine is still to play out, probably to be resolved in March of next year, though that's still TBC. And there was nothing firm on lobsters or beef. But there was a meeting between Don Farrell and his Chinese counterpart in Shanghai. After that meeting, uh, Minister Farrell was really positive and upbeat about the prospects for Australian beef and lobster in China. Now, the visit probably didn't dramatically change the outcome there, but it contributes to that movement of all of those final trade restrictions being removed in the coming weeks and months. And so I think that's another concrete, specific thing. Yeah, and when I was thinking about the answer to this question, um, you know, I came up with the idea of institutional infrastructure, right? That you're creating the mechanisms or, you know, renewing the mechanisms for continuing engagement and then starting some momentum for that process. 
And, you know, I feel compelled to channel Alan here and when he defined foreign policy, you know, for him it was about, you know, trying to create options for yourself, right? Like you are navigating the messy currents of, of international politics and trying to navigate them in a way that you always have options in different scenarios. And yes, you can measure success through concrete deliverables, but you can also measure it in a more long-term sense of give, have we given ourselves freedom to move given what might come in the future and setting up these mechanisms of engagement are part of creating those options and so I think should be supported. Now, we can't just have this forever, but I think we're at a point right now where it's, for me, quite straightforward to say that setting them up is, is, is a clear step forward. I think that's absolutely right. And particularly when you think about the historical context here, which is that without laying blame at anyone's feet in particular, those institutions had been shredded or at the very least very significantly harmed over the last few years in terms of the Australia-China relationship. And so in many ways, we're getting back to where we were prior to 2020. And so it's not a significant progression of the relationship in absolute terms relative to the previous high point. But at the very least, the fact that we are rebuilding what was previously destroyed is important in terms of having that kind of institutional capacity that you're talking about. And I think we probably can't even see a lot of those benefits because, you know, the Chinese system, as big and as sprawling as it is, lower level officials are maybe not taking concrete instructions, but reading signals from the top. And if they are seeing Xi Jinping meet with Albanese, they are reading state media that is more glowing. At the margins, you'd have to expect that's going to make them a bit more free to pursue cooperation when it's in their interest to do so with their Australian counterparts. I remember doing fieldwork back in Japan, like more than 10 years ago now, and talking to someone who was working on energy security. And China and, and Japan are both energy consumers. And it was a time of great bilateral political chill over various disputes. And this official said to me, there is so much we could do together in the energy space that we can't because of the political chill at higher levels. And so we, I mean, neither of us probably have full visibility of the extent to which in the government domain, but also in the private sector, there have been inhibitions on the Chinese side in, in taking steps forward that might get freed up now. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying this is a concrete thing, but my knowledge of the Chinese system such as it is suggests that it could be quite meaningful in many micro ways that we will never really observe. Would you agree with that? Yeah, 100%. I think it's a really, really important point. And I, I agree with you in terms of the need for, let's say, analytical caution on this question, because it's hard to measure and it's hard to have all the relevant data points in front of you. But anecdotally, it does seem like this kind of high level signaling in the case of the Australia-China relationship is going to have this massive flow and effect right down through the system of government, but also in the economy and in society more broadly. And as I said earlier, this is just anecdotal, but in the wake of this visit, and I guess in the lead up to it as well, when everything was becoming a bit more positive, there were just so many more indications of Australian academics going to China, for example, Chinese academics coming to Australia, much more of that exchange, which had previously been put on ice for many, many years, partly because of the relationship, partly because of COVID, but now that is coming back to life. And I think it, we can't necessarily draw a really strong, clear line between all of that and what's happening at the high political level, but I think we probably can reasonably infer the two things are related. And this is, again, just a little anecdotal tidbit, but I have been doing writing and research about Australia-China relations for many, many years. For the longest time, have never been approached by Chinese state media for comment or to engage at all. And then just in the last few weeks, have had a few instances where Chinese state media has reached out 
and wanted advice or ideas. I don't engage with Chinese state media and so I haven't responded in a serious way, but it's still indicative, I think, that there is a broader thaw coming through the system as a whole. Let me then move then to the idea of the ledger. Um, in my last episode with Stephen Jadgetz, you know, I posited the idea of a crude ledger where we want things from Beijing, Beijing wants things from us. Um, it is international cooperation is a negotiation. We have given up some things. They have uh, given up some things. Stephen made the point that many of the things that they have given to us are sort of possibly resumptions of a status quo on the economic front. How comfortable are you with me engaging in a conversation of, of, of measuring whether or not we got a good deal to this point <laughs> in a Donald Trumpian sense? And, 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 and it's whether, regardless of whether you agree with it, do, you know, have, how are we doing on, on the ledger, do you think? Well, I mean, given that the odds right now are on a second Trump term, it's probably good for Australians to start socialising themselves to this very cut and dry deal making way of thinking. <laughs> if we're going to do that in terms of the Australia-China relationship, I think the first thing I'd say is I am broadly comfortable with that way of thinking about it. But I'd want to, I think, wind things back a little bit and go from first principles. And the reason I do that is that one of the things that's really struck me over the course of the last couple of years of Australia-China relations and domestic Australian politics is that because of the wedge issue of China and the coalition attacking Labor for apparently being soft on China, the Albanese government, both in opposition before the election and then certainly after the election, had as one of their core political messages domestically in Australia that we won't compromise on China. And Albanese at one point explicitly said no compromises, that's the approach. Now that sets a really high bar for your interactions with another country because as you rightly pointed out in the last episode, and I think this is a generally true point, international intercourse, when countries are engaging with each other, that involves give and take all the time. And if you're not gonna do give and take, well then you're not gonna have much success in the international arena. And that's a point that I think someone like Alan would fully get behind as well. Yeah. Now, the Albanese government for domestic political reasons put in place a no compromises approach to China. We're in this weird space right now where looking at that ledger, as you describe it, everyone can see that compromises have been made on both sides. Many, many compromises. But because of the political framing from the Albanese government, it's hard to have a serious conversation about that, particularly because once we start to have a serious conversation about that, inevitably the attack comes from various different quarters. You are weak on China. You're selling Australia out for China. But I think it is worthwhile thinking about the general point that this is in some way the price of doing international business. There's a bit of cut and thrust and give and take. And with that kind of long-winded preface out of the way, I would say that Australia is doing relatively well out of all of this. We have, it seems, gotten to the point where we're on the brink of having all of those trade restrictions removed. We have diplomatic dialogue back to its normal rhythm. Now, to Stephen's point, yes, this is the reinstatement of things that should never have been taken away. I wholeheartedly agree. But the reality is that when Canberra is confronting Beijing, we are confronting a very powerful actor that has very little hesitation on using a whole host of different coercive measures against us. And if we can get them to take away those coercive measures in both the economic and diplomatic arenas, that is a good thing for us. So mm. getting that across the line is really positive. I think we've also on some level seen a bit of a shifting of the mood in the Chinese system of government vis-a-vis -vis Australia. Now that could be surface level. Beijing could well 
become much more frosty towards Canberra. But still, I think it is a win on some level that that has shifted. And then really concrete, specific, tangible things that matter profoundly to the individuals concerned, but also to the broader Australian community, things like the release of Chung Le, that is a massive, very significant positive development, of course, for her and her family, but also for the broader Australian community. In terms of what Beijing has gotten and what Australia might have given up, it really is a mixed bag. And I am open to arguing all of this in both directions. So when it comes to the two WTO cases on barley and wine, Australia has compromised there. We have said we're not going to go through with those proceedings. We'll give Beijing an off-ramp. And there are voices in Australia who will say that is on some level undermining the rules-based international system. It's giving yeah. Beijing a free pass. It's not adequately punishing them for their trade malfeasance. And I'm really sympathetic to that line of thinking. I tend to agree. We have these rules and principles in place. We should uphold them. There should be more naming and shaming when a country behaves in an unacceptable way. Having said that, there is this core pragmatic concern for any Australian government and for Australian businesses, which is getting access to markets again. And I think if you go down the principled route of holding out on those WTO proceedings, it's very possible that you further strain the relationship with China. China doesn't lift those trade restrictions in the end. They stonewall you and maybe even punish you more in other ways. And so I think there is a cost in terms of compromising on those cases, but arguably cost benefit, the benefits outweigh the cost there. And I think that's the space we're in right now where on something like those WTO cases, or for example, the decision to not impose sanctions against Chinese officials implicated in severe and systematic human rights abuses in Xinjiang, you can argue it both ways. And I think it's not a case of, we obviously did the right thing. We obviously did the wrong thing. It's a case of, in my view, on balance, we probably made a series of pretty good calls and we did sacrifice some things. There have been costs involved, WTO cases, human rights abuses in China. Uh, you could also talk potentially about the Darwin port lease. Arguably, that should not be in place. But when thinking about the national interest objectives of getting trade back into China, stabilizing that relationship, I think on balance, it looks pretty good from an Australian point of view. And yeah. particularly because if things go wrong in terms of those wine duties and they don't get lifted in the end, the Australian government can go back to that proceeding and initiate that again. And I think in terms of the reputational aspect of it, Australia has a very long track record over the last few years of naming and shaming China's economic coercion. So we lost an opportunity to further name and shame China with the WTO process, but we already got a pretty good impact there over the course of many years of diplomacy. And so I'm not sure that we're giving up that much there, but it's contested and contestable. Yeah, look, I I agree with all that. I think you know, Alan used to say that you, you can't only work with your friends and the people who are like you. Um, and so we're, you know, working with China um, or sort of, you know, the way Ian Hall talked about the way we need to work with India, you know, we, we, even when they do things allegedly that are very distasteful, that's going to require you to make choices that feel a bit icky. Um, and it's made much worse in the China context because in many ways they are a geopolitical rival. I mean, they have interests that starkly diverge from Australia's and those of our partners. And so anything, whether it's a handshake between the leaders, you know, endorsements from state media who will just as easily, you know, do the exact opposite um, or any of the other things you listed, there's going to be a human reaction to go, oh, just, you know, and, and those who are, you know, very sceptical of China, have very, zero trust um, of Beijing, are going to then obviously use these um, as evidence of, of, of capitulation. And I think, 
I try to sort of step back and go like it, it's we have you know it, is it hold your nose I don't know but like you know there are things that are not going to feel entirely comfortable and that is just what diplomacy and international cooperation involve um, and we have to have a hard-headed assessment of our interests and our interests on net you know you can strongly make the argument both of us would agree have been served on balance to this point and we have to live with the feeling of of ickiness that goes yeah. along with it yeah it's, it's a bit glib but i think it's probably still true to say that saintliness doesn't pair well with statecraft when you're in the business of making national policy and prosecuting your country's interests on the world stage it's hard to be a moral purist all the time maybe sometimes you can be but those instances are probably few and far between. The other thing that I, I, I would emphasize, building on your point, is that I think on some of these issues as well, it's not clear that Australia gave up that much. So on the WTO cases or the sanctions on human rights abusers, I think you can make a pretty compelling case that we gave up something substantive, significant. But then some of this was just good timing, good tactics, good diplomacy on Canberra's part. So say, for example, we've had two rejections of Chinese or China-linked investments in critical minerals, and they were paired with approvals of other big investments in iron ore and nickel. Now, timing releases of decisions to please Beijing, it's a bit of a compromise, but it's a compromise that probably doesn't really matter. It doesn't impinge in any way on the Australian national interest. And the substantive question of the Darwin Port lease to Lambridge Group, the Chinese company, the substantive question is an interesting one, and I don't want to get into that, but in terms of the timing of it, as Stephen pointed out, pretty shamelessly timed to coincide with the lead up to the visit to give Beijing a bit of a positive vibe. Now, that's a bit of a compromise, changing Australia's release schedule for a particular finding to please Beijing, but it's a compromise that probably doesn't really matter that much. You're buttering them up, you're placating them a little bit, but in terms of a hard-headed calculation of Australian national interest, it doesn't really move the dial. And I think we've seen quite a bit of that savvy diplomacy and savvy timing on the part of the Albanese government where they're making little tweaks and little compromises to achieve what is probably a pretty good net impact in terms of the Australia-China relationship and Australian interests. And in some of these cases, not actually giving up that much anyway. Yeah, I mean, I guess to hold on this point for just one second more, you've raised the issue of human rights and you wrote an op-ed for the Canberra Times a few days ago, um, where you know I fixated on one word. You described the lack of reprisals or the lack of action taken against Chinese officials implicated in in the abuses and in Xinjiang. You know, you described it as a failure. The government has not done this. But listening to what you've just told me, you know, there is a give and take, and we have to make some compromises. This is an issue, obviously, very close to your heart. But you're also, you know, emphasising statecraft is not saintliness. I sort of infer into the future, or I don't expect the Australian government to be doing a lot on this issue, um, at least in, in at this government. Uh, and I see it, I suppose, as a, you know, a difficult trade-off, um, but one that I can I can see why it's made. Reasonable people will disagree, um, but it's one that is not. And unreasonable. How do you feel uh, about this? And you know, acknowledging that it's a personal and very difficult issue. Yeah. Look, I'm really glad that you raised this question, and it's one that I've agonised over for many, many months, many, many years. And it's it's definitely a case of I wrote something like that op-ed, and I've written similar things in my newsletter about the case for targeted sanctions against certain Chinese officials. And I make those recommendations and made that argument at that op-ed, not because I think realistically the Albanese government will ever do that. And on some level, to be completely honest, 
I'm not 100% sure they absolutely should do that for mm. the kinds of national interest calculations that we've been discussing. I think my compulsion to put forward a view like that is more a function of the ickiness that you mentioned before, that we are in this business of, as a nation, making hard-headed, difficult calculations about what we will and won't do based on a consideration of what is in the Australian national interest. But inevitably, at times, those hard-headed calculations mean that we don't do things that, all things being equal, we think are right and probably should do. We don't do them for pragmatic reasons. And I think on a very personal level, I find that really troubling and want to write something about it because I think it's something that matters to me deeply personally, but also because I think it matters to the broader Australian community. And at this point, given that you plugged me, I'll shamelessly plug you by saying that I recently read your piece in the Australian Journal of International Affairs about Alan and the pod, and I loved it. And the piece spoke to me in a lot of ways, but particularly in terms of Alan's enduring commitment to bring these difficult, challenging, messy, complex policy debates out into the public arena. Because from the point of view of the Australian public, these kinds of questions, these fundamental moral questions of should we allow people implicated in systematic and severe human rights abuses to come to Australia and invest in Australia and benefit from the freedoms in Australia, that's a, a first order ethical question. And as we are an open, free democracy with accountability, and these are our core values, the essence of who we are, I think the Australian people have to be brought into this conversation and it has to be a full national discussion. And that's the kind of spirit from which I come at this issue where even though if I was responsible for a decision like that, I'm not sure that I would push the button and go forth with it. I think at the very least, there is a really strong case for the broader Australian public to know what it is we're giving up through this stabilization process to go into it eyes wide open and say okay we have this repaired relationship we have the positivity we have the trade restrictions removed but of course at the same time there are something in the order of a million tibetan children who are being taken to boarding schools and who are not being able to live out their cultural and linguistic rights as they see fit and that is a moral stain on the chinese communist party and the world more broadly and i think there's a case for the Australian public to be brought into that kind of conversation, difficult and messy though it might be. Yeah, and I guess that conversation is also to fully flesh out the benefits, so to speak, um, or as distasteful as it might be to frame them that way. But of course, as I discussed with Stephen, we have our relationships with the rest of the region who take a different view on these issues. Um, and I've long thought of this government's foreign policy is very much about trying to find as much common cause with the region as possible. And then, of course, you've got the question of actual outcome, right? Is the expression um, of our values, are we looking to achieve a concrete policy change with that? Or are we looking to achieve some other you know, normative value? All this gets mixed into the conversation. And uh, yeah, I mean, I guess thank you for raising the the Australian Journal of International Affairs piece. It is open access. I'll post a link to it um, to, to readers who, who want to read um, me and, and Walter Colnaghi, who was the, the final sort of intern of the pod in the state involved since Alan died, sort of talk about, you know, and also try to theorise a little bit about how Alan um, used the podcast or was able to, to, to leverage the podcast to make contributions in these final years of his life. But yeah, like, you know, it's you, you want to get these things out there and, and, and the podcast is a form where we can communicate with some emotion and, and colour how fraud it is and that it's but it, that it's also not black and white, that there are no simple answers and that holding fast to, you know, purity, as you mentioned earlier, in either direction, 
um, whether it's sort of moral purity or ruthless Kissingerian statecraft, can lead you to some places that you, over time um, you don't you know you don't want to find yourself in. Um, and so that's the wonderful thing um, about this particular medium. Um, all right, I, I want to talk about stabilization. You know, if we're going to be in this love fest of plugging each other's work, the most recent <laughs> episode or edition of Beijing to Canberra and back, you do a deep, deep dive into the causes of stabilisation. Um, do you agree with the government that we are at a point of stabilisation? And if so, how do we get here? Yeah, this is a really, really messy, complicated question. And again, thank you for the shameless plug. <laughs> in terms of the question of stabilization or not my sense is that the relationship has been officially stabilized now we've been talking over the course of the last year or so about the process of stabilization getting towards stabilization that's the goal and now i think we're finally there of course the trade restrictions haven't totally gone but it seems almost perfunctory at this point that they are on their way out and in terms of the diplomacy of the relationship it is basically where it was before. The official dialogues are all back on. The Australia-China human rights dialogue is not there, but it's not clear that Australia wants that anyway. So I think the relationship has fully stabilized. I, I would say though, that the caveat there, which is I think a really important caveat, is that it's stabilized, but the relationship is kind of stable in the way that a really precarious Jenga tower is stable. <laughs> At the top, it's stable, there's no movement, but there are so many different possibilities which could involve it collapsing at any minute. And I think that's where we're at right now in that whenever I talk about the future for the relationship, of course, things look good really right now, really good right now, the positivity and warmth from both sides, etc. But there are just so many really deep-seated points of disagreement. And in many cases, these are getting more and more intense. And so many of the things that really frustrated Beijing about Canberra, they're still there. And so many of the long-term things that have made Canberra really suspicious of and concerned about Beijing, they're all still there as well. And so it feels like there are so many different vectors that could result in everything falling apart once again. In terms of how we got here, I think this is such a fascinating analytical question that also really matters in policy terms in that to kind of boil it down to a really simple story, if you thought that the relationship had stabilized because Canberra was speaking in a more appealing way to Beijing and was a little bit more polite diplomatically speaking, and that was the reason and that was the story, then that leads to a really different bit of policy advice, which is to say, if you want to have a stable productive relationship with China, you just use different diplomacy and you placate Beijing a little bit more and everything will be fine. By contrast, if you think that we're stabilized now because China tried economic coercion and diplomatic deep freeze and it didn't work, and that's the simple reason, then you could say, well, to get a stable relationship with China, all you have to do is just see out the punishment, Stick hold firm, yeah. yeah, and eventually they'll give up when they know it doesn't work and you'll have stabilization again. I think the problem here in this particular case is that there are just so many considerations that have gone into the stabilization that we've seen. Some of it, obviously, is about what Australia has done, or at least prima facie, it seems like it's about what Australia has done. Things like the message discipline, things like holding back on certain policy decisions, not sanctioning senior Chinese officials, things like being willing to compromise in a kind of quid pro quo way, offering up an end to WTO proceedings in exchange for an expedited review, quote unquote, expedited review of Bali and possibly in the case of wine as well. And then some of it I think also is about what China wants to get out of Australia in that Beijing 
was subjecting Australia to this economic punishment campaign and diplomatic denial. But in the end, it didn't get a lot of the things that it sought to achieve in terms of significant policy rollbacks from Canberra. And so on some level, it's probably a product of policy failure on China's part. They didn't get a reversal of the 2018 decision vis-a-vis Huawei and ZTE to keep them out of the 5G network. They didn't get a rollback of policy vis-a-vis foreign interference. They didn't get a rollback of AUKUS, for example. And so Beijing says, look, we got on this path, haven't achieved our objectives. Let's think about maybe enticing with carrots rather than trying to punish with sticks. And then very specific defined things. Beijing clearly wants to get into the CPTPP, the trade pact. And Beijing knew for the longest time that having trade sanctions against Australia meant that entry into that trade pact was a non-starter. And so it had to normalize trade to get in. So there are things where Beijing's motivations have clearly contributed to stabilization. And then I think, and this is maybe something that we don't talk about enough in Australia, but which is critical to all of this, broader structural factors. So one of the big accelerants in terms of the downturn in the Australia-China relationship was COVID-19 and all of the fraught geopolitics of that period. Now, on some level, I think the simple passage of time has helped the relationship where that happened quite a few years ago. Everyone has gotten a bit of fresh air since then. And the tension of that period fades away. Other big things like the fact that Trump is no longer in power and U.S.-China relations are not as overtly adversarial. And by extension, Australia-China relations are not as overtly adversarial. That matters, too. And then there are uh, broader things as well that relate to the way in which things like the big policy decisions that really, really frustrated Beijing, the things that we were talking about earlier, things like the bans on Huawei and ZTE or uh, the AUKUS decision or foreign interference, they were taken by the previous coalition government. And Labor has held firm on them, but Labor is in a way an inheritor of all of these tough policy decisions. And I think that is beneficial for the Labor government and for the Australia-China relationship that from Beijing's point of view, the people they're dealing with in Canberra aren't the people who overtly did all the things they didn't like. They're the people who are kind of just running with that agenda. And so I think there are just so many factors like that that mean that we can't identify one particular thing that is the cause of this. It really is a very big, complicated, multifactorial equation. Yeah, the one thing I would add, um, and this is really my theorist's model building instinct here, is that if you have a model where you have warmth at one end and and cold at the other. And, you know, we had a relatively warm relationship through the 2000s into the middle of the 2010s. You would expect, zooming out from about 2016 onwards, for things to get a bit colder, right? You have foreign interference scandals. You have um, increasing attention on the issue. You have the, the Huawei ban. You have the foreign interference legislation. You ha- and that's from the Australian side. And then you have from the Chinese side, increased assertiveness generally in, in international relations, increased sensitivity, wolf warrior diplomacy, discrete concerns about South China Sea, the human rights situation. We should expect, therefore, you know, these structural forces to move the relationship in the direction of cold. And we have seen, indeed... Pretty much every country, um, well, not every country, but many, many other countries, especially those on the Western side of things, liberal democracies, have seen a deterioration in their relations with Beijing as well over this time frame. But I think what made us a bit different was there was an overcorrection. And I would probably point to COVID like you did in that, you know, everyone kind of just got a bit over their skis. The inquiry call from the Australian side and the sticking to that line, the reaction to that on the Chinese side 
hardening positions, and this is where I think agency comes in to some extent. I'm starting with structural forces and then moving to the, the, the personal forces that put saw both sides going to their corner. But if you looked at the at the structural dynamics, it didn't make a lot of sense that we would maintain such a degree of cold, given the interests that both sides have. And you have you, you have some enabling conditions, the change in government. I would add, I think, a bit of a, a geopolitical um, sort of back foot that China posture as China has to take. I think the Ukraine invasion and backing Russia put them on the back foot. Clearly, the domestic challenges that they're facing economically, in particular have meant that they have a broader interest in trying to make a, create a friendlier international environment. But, you know, I think of stabilisation as actually the finding of a new equilibrium, that we were in a state of disequilibrium that persisted for quite a long time, but that wasn't really in either side's interest. To me, where we are now, as a precarious Jenga tower that it might be, makes more sense. And yes, that involves icky compromises from our side, probably from their side as well. They're still, probably still incredulous about the inquiry call. But nevertheless, it makes more sense. But of course, this then leads us to the future because we're now, if things are stabilised, we're in a situation where the Jenga Tower has lots of blocks in it that could easily be pushed out through exogenous shocks like a balloon flying over the continental US, blowing up the Blinken visit earlier this year. Any number of things structural forces or shocks that could destabilize things how do you see the next phase how are you conceptualizing it or thinking about it beyond maybe flesh out the jenga towel for us a bit more <laughs> i think you're absolutely right in terms of the possibility of all sorts of things coming from left field that are totally unexpected that could cause a really really dramatic downturn very very quickly it might be things like obvious things like some kind of contingency in the Taiwan Strait in the wake of the Taiwanese presidential election in January of next year. Or it could be very specific granular things in Australia that have this big spiralling impact on the Australia-China relationship. Say, for example, if there was some kind of really significant scandalous case in terms of foreign interference and that was revealed publicly and became a huge media furor in Australia, it's very possible that that would really sour Beijing's view of Australia. I, I think... The, the point you were making earlier about it being to be expected on some level that we'd be in a much more frosty place, I think makes total sense that the temperature that we're at now, leaving aside the blip of intense warmth of the leader level visit, is what you would expect on some level because of those bigger structural things. And also, I think one big thing that Beijing is obviously thinking about, and which almost makes it surprising that we even got back to the level of warmth that we're at right now, is just the depth of the Australia-US alliance. That relationship has ramped up really dramatically in the last few years, obviously in relation to AUKUS, the plan to acquire nuclear-powered submarines, but maybe even more importantly in terms of US force posture in Australia in Osmin 2021 and beyond. And from a long-term military strategic point of view, if you're looking at it from Beijing's perspective, that's the real concern. That's a really troubling development in terms of your long-term objectives being hampered by this massive increase in US military power in the Western Pacific and in Australia in particular. And so on some level, to your point about the ickiness on both sides, I think Beijing 
making nice with Canberra right now and the relationship getting much more positive in the context of AUKUS and in the context of US force posture in Australia, those are almost certainly things where Beijing is holding its nose saying, yeah. we deeply distrust Australia. They are at the vanguard of US military containment efforts in the Western Pacific. They are going to be a key launching pad for US power to retard our ability to achieve our objectives. And yet, despite that, we're making nice with them for all of these pragmatic considerations. And I think the, in terms of the, the structural things that you were talking about at the beginning, I think that US-Australia relationship piece is so important here that it's, I don't think, pure coincidence or correlation that the period of China's economic coercion of Australia and China's diplomatic deep freeze of Australia was also the time when Australia plowed forward massively with the plan for AUKUS and also US force posture. The deep sense of Australian insecurity and fear vis-a-vis China, that economic coercion and diplomatic denial fostered in a really dramatic way, pushed Canberra much more closely to the United States. And China saw that. And I, I imagine there would be smart analysts and policy planners in Beijing who'd be thinking, if we want to slow that trend of Australia embracing in a really deep, military strategic way the United States even more so, we have to start bringing Australia back in. We have to try and win them over a little bit and not punish them so much because we are just going to make them a fortress USA in the Southern Pacific. In terms of what happens from here and what the key points of tension might be, I think because of the fact that on the wine duties, we still have another few months for that to roll out. That's probably in March of next year. I think we're going to be in a bit of a holding pattern for the next few months where we'll kind of be tentatively edging towards a full resumption of the normal trading relationship. We will have uh, lobster and beef go, and then we'll have wine go probably, and then we'll be back to normal programming, if you like. And then I think the, the points of tension are probably going to be very specific, discrete things in the end. They're obviously, as I mentioned at the outset, things that we can't predict, things that might blow up all of a sudden. But there are things that are kind of looming on the horizon that are coming towards Canberra and that are going to create challenges for Canberra, but also for Beijing by extension. I think one big thing is going to be CPTPP. The level of determination on the part of the Chinese senior leadership is really striking on this one. They've been telegraphing it for a long time. They're setting up free trade zones where they're trying to say that they're going to be compliant with CPTPP regs. And I, I think it indicates a real serious intent on Beijing's part. And of course, right now, it looks like a totally implausible proposition. Australia's just come out of all this experience of economic coercion. How on earth could Australia ever say, China, come into this free trade agreement yeah. tent with us? It seems absurd, particularly when you add into that Tokyo's deep misgivings about Beijing and CPTPP and the fact that at least for some people, as it was originally conceived as a TPP, it was a trade agreement counter block to China's construction of regional trade architecture. So it seems absurd right now, but the Chinese information apparatus is gearing up and you see Chinese consul generals and the Chinese government more broadly projecting into Australia and elsewhere in the world this message, China, big important market, look at all the things you can gain, you can get even more if you let us into the CPTPP tent. So I think the pressure on that front is going to become really intense on Australia and there'll be the public information campaign that Beijing will run, but also Chinese officials are going to press their Australian counterparts really hard at the official level, but also ministerial and leader level. And I think the argument will probably go something like, yes, we had those trade troubles in the past. That's all been resolved. So how could you possibly object now to bring us in? Australia, aren't you a paragon of virtue when it comes to trade liberalization on the world stage? Despite all of our differences in terms of political values and systems, we agree on this. Let's move forward together, liberalize trade. There's a really clear case for it. And I think there'll be 
protracted and frustrated disappointments in Beijing when Canberra probably says no, 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 no. So that's going to be one thing. I think there'll be a lot of wrangling on investments in critical minerals. Beijing clearly wants in on the Australian critical minerals industry and Australia very clearly doesn't want Beijing in. And so that's going to be a perpetual source of tension. And then the bigger thing and the longer term thing and maybe the pointier thing for Australia is going to be in the direction of policy travel in Washington on technology and economic policy. So we had the landmark decision of last year in October of last year vis-a-vis US export controls on semiconductors. That kind of went by Australia. It didn't really matter. We're not a big player in that market. It's a rounding error for us. But the United States is determined on this front. Right now, there's a small yard and a high fence. There's pretty soon going to be a much bigger yard and a much bigger fence. And Australia will be part of that. If only because the United States wants to, longer term, restrict access for Chinese technology companies to foreign capital. And Australia is a significant, not the most important, of course, but a significant investor in China. And so there will be a broader US push to bring in allies and partners on this long term, very, very determined effort to starve China's technology ecosystem and innovation ecosystem, not just of components and microprocessors, but also capital and all the inputs that go into that innovation ecosystem. And Washington will be looking, obviously, first and foremost, to Tokyo, Seoul, Taipei, the Netherlands as well, but also looking to Canberra in that regard. And I think from the point of view of long-term policy planning in Australia and the Australia-China relationship, that rub point of the United States wanting us to be part of a technological and economic containment effort of China and how that intersects with our trading relationship with China and our effort to keep the political relationship with China on even keel is going to be really, really messy and complicated. And I don't see there being easy, good answers for Australia. And I think one final point on this is the AUKUS component. So AUKUS Pillar one, the nuclear powered submarines. Pillar two, it's a much bigger collection of elements of science and technology and innovation in the military industrial space. Mm. That is gonna rub up against Australia's efforts to not be part of this US technological containment effort of China. Because from the point of view of Washington, it seems absurd that Australia would not be part of efforts to, for example, cut off finance into Chinese tech companies if Australia also thinks it can benefit from leading edge US technology in the military industrial space. And I think it's going to get really, really pointy and challenging for Australia to thread that needle of keeping the economic relationship with China open and keeping political ties happy and broadly positive, while also not disappointing Washington on its effort to launch very well-resourced, determined, long-term, full-scale technological and economic competition with China at the leading edge. Yeah, three reactions to that. First, I think the easy point, which is there's no one theory or strategy um, in a George Kennan sense that's going to help us navigate these questions. All we want is to maximise our options, which is why we want to engage now. Um, point number two on the, on the CPTPP, I have this instinct that if China was admitted and complied, it would actually be a really good thing. The CPTPP is designed to kind of address some of the structural problems with the WTO that can't handle the Chinese system, and especially the, 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 the close connection between state and, and, and market and, and state-owned enterprises. But the problem, of course, is that the Chinese have got very little compunction of, in weaponizing their economy when they're unhappy. We've seen multiple instances of this, not with, with Australia, but in the last few months, with Japan over over Fukushima, the banning of the entire seafood uh, export market, um, Taiwan with with mangoes um, and and the Vietnamese the reports of of as I said in Stephen's episode, 
of agricultural products um, being being lost. I saw a report just today about lobsters, six tons of lobsters dying, um, you know, on the border. I think, and so, you know, China is 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 routinely kind of ignoring um, the spirit, if not the letter, of, of international trade law. And so I think an argument that we can make to them, not just that you need to normalize trade with us, but we want to see good behavior all around and that, that you don't, you know, that you just can't on a moment's notice because you're unhappy with something, impose blockages, right? That's the point of the, T- the CPTPP. And it might help us stretch out that negotiating period. We're not saying never, but we're saying we're seeing a lot of evidence, right? There's a, a we've signed anti-coercion statements, the G7, everyone agrees you shouldn't be allowed to coerce. Well, let's make that a pillar of a, of a CPTPP negotiation. Um, and let's set up the mechanisms where if you do coerce, um, it can be part of a joining protocol, perhaps, you know, you would lose the benefits of that, of that trade agreement. On de-risking, you know, the question, it's not just US pressure, but it's also the decarbonisation agenda, right? A lot of what I think, you know, smart policymakers in Canberra are thinking about when they think about the future of Australia-China economic relations is what role we can play in China's decarbonisation agenda. Because that's not just important for us in terms of material gains, it's important for the entire world. And there are things, you know, China, we have been a major contributor to China's carbonisation. Um, we can also be a major contributor to their decarbonisation agenda. Um, and that you know, can we de-risk and decarbonize at the same time? I mean, and that's not just a problem that we're going to face. It's a problem the US and Europe, of course, face as well. So we've got an alliance management issue and we'll have a decarbonization issue that is going to be balancing against, you know, the, the sort of the bilateral um, relations with China. So again, no, I've got no template here. Um, but I think it's it's sort of broader than just how do we manage the US as they go about their de-risking efforts it's going to be well. What? What? How, where do? We, where are we on climate change? Like, is this an existential threat? Mm. Are we willing to accept certain security risks because of the benefits to decarbonisation that would accompany those? And no one in the world has an answer on this one yet. Um, and, and but I'm hoping that you know smart people in the Australian system can help contribute to an answer because it's one that we don't just want to answer. It's it's got to be answered by by everybody. Do you have any reaction to that? Yeah, look, I think all three of those points are totally right. Uh, in terms of the CPTPP angle in particular, I think one thing that will be a bit of a saving grace for Canberra in all of this is that it is consensus-based decision-making. And I think Australia, like the other CPTPP countries, will be able to hide behind that consensus a little bit and kind of string China along for a few more months, a few more years, maybe even a few more decades. So I, I think there is a bit of a get out of jail free card for Australia in that regard. And I, I think you're totally right to kind of hose down the risks of a really pointy binary choice on CPTPP. And I do wonder, and maybe the Australian government could parlay that CPTPP push from China into a bit of an opportunity, as you say, in that if you have Beijing knocking furiously at the door on CPTPP and you're stringing them along with the consensus-based, couldn't possibly say, we'll talk, we'll get back to you at some point, that actually creates a pretty strong incentive within the Chinese system to push forward with a bit more liberalization to actually try and adhere to those kinds of standards and do some of the things domestically which would be good for China, but good for the world, and also encourage better behavior. I do wonder though, and this is like the niggling concern I have in all of this, that even though I think 
there is that get out of jail free card and there is that possibility to incentivize good behavior on Beijing's part, there probably is going to be growing frustration in China on this front. And I don't think they would be willing or that happy to play this kind of coy long-term game of being strung along indefinitely. And I think there's possibly also a bit of a risk of misunderstanding between Beijing and Canberra in this regard in that China, I imagine from its point of view, has gone through this process of stabilizing the relationship, giving Australia a whole host of things that Australia wanted and relenting in terms of economic coercion and diplomatic deep freeze. And I think Beijing may well be in the frame of mind right now of saying, okay, you have gotten a lot of what you wanted. Now also we have to get some of the things that we want in addition to the other things that we've gotten already. And that might be Australia being much more amenable to CPTPP or maybe even not necessarily backing China fully, but at the very least saying something more definitive and negative about Taiwan getting in, for example. Yeah, can't disagree with any of that. I mean, I do like the more positively oriented framing of this discussion and that the WTO system is not is broken and that's you know very much been driven by the US but beneath that you know is a structural flaw that it just can't really handle the modern world and and the geoeconomic world order as my colleagues Anthea Roberts and Victor Ferguson have written and th- that we need a new set of trade rules not only that can sort of handle um, and put some bounds on the connections between state and market and the Chinese system but that can also promote a decarbonisation agenda, right? And something like the Inflation Reduction Act in many ways is is is, is inimical to the, the post-war economic order. You know, it's sucking in investment from all over the world, um, you know, for, for, for U- it benefits the US and harms everybody else. But maybe we do want to live in a world where the IRA is, is acceptable because of its contribution to, to decarbonisation. And so I think... You know, China's desire to join the, the this new trade pact provides an opportunity to sort of say, look, if you're genuinely serious and these are things you're not want to going to want to do, but, you know, we are in the process of trying to build an alternative or a reformed order that is going to allow, have more space for national security exceptions, is going to have a much bigger space for a decarbonisation agenda that might conflict with orthodox free trade principles. And one, of course, where economic coercion, you know, is not should not be as you know, as 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 easily accessible as it is as it is right now. So, anyway, look, um, this has been fantastic. I I, I want to wrap up now with reading, listening, and watching. I'll, I'll go first to give you a moment to collect your thoughts, Ben. And mine's very fast. Just a few days ago, I came across a piece of piano music that just really resonated with me. And I looked it up and it's, 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 the title is River Flows in You. And it was composed by a Korean uh, composer over 20 years ago uh, who goes by the stage name of Yiruma. I'll post a link uh, in the show notes. And it turns out this piece has, is wildly popular, has been used in many soundtracks and at TV advertisements. So I've probably heard it before and never realized it. It's only three and a half minutes long and it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, and so um, that's probably why it's been so popular, um, but it only now has just come to my attention. So that's my listening for this week. Ben, what do you have for us? Fantastic. I'll definitely check that out. Go uh, for it. If I may, I'll offer two really, really quickly. The first one is something that given how much grim, horrific news there is in the world right now, I go back to on a regular basis just to kind of center things. It's an image called Pale Blue Dot, which was taken by Voyager 1 as it was going beyond Neptune and put its camera back towards the center of the solar system. And it's the Earth 
caught in some beams of light from the sun and the earth is reduced to one little pale blue pixel. And to my mind, whenever I look at that, because I'm forever still a first year philosophy student, I both weep and feel this sense of solace in that everything in this world, all of the states, all of the messiness, all the complexity, it's contained in this tiny little dot in this vast expanse of space. And it's really humbling and it reminds me to think <laughs> much more charitably about my fellow human beings because it sounds really corny and naff, but we all share this tiny little thing floating through a vast universe. And then <laughs> on a more pragmatic note, my seven-year-old son is absolutely passionate about Jurassic Park right now. He's going through this manic phase of wanting to watch it all the time. And so I've been re-watching the old Jurassic Park and it is just spectacularly good. Steven Spielberg at his best, pure joy and entertainment. Check it out. Yeah, and the Michael Crichton book uh, on which it's based is also just so good. Um, as, a, as a pair, um, very much worth revisiting. Well, thanks very much for those recommendations, Ben. And more importantly, thanks for a fantastic conversation. I really thought this you know, lived up to the spirit of the podcast as Alan and I uh, originally intended it. And I'm trying to keep alive for as long as possible uh, and just re really thrilling and interesting as well. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And I am still blushing even at the end of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. I thank Walter Kanagi for research and audio editing today and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We will talk to you again soon.